Section two of the Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. The Pastons and Chaucer. The tower of Caister Castle still rises ninety feet into the air and the arch still stands from which sir john fastolf's barges sailed out to fetch stone for the building of the great castle but now jackdaws nest on the tower and of the castle which once covered six acres of ground only ruined walls remain pierced by loopholes and surmounted by battlements though there are neither archers within nor cannon without as for the seven religious men and the seven poor folk who should at this very moment be praying for the souls of sir john and his parents there is no sign of them nor sound of their prayers the place is a ruin antiquaries speculate and differ not so very far off lie more ruins the ruins of bromel priory where john paston was buried naturally enough since his house was only a mile or so away lying on low ground by the sea twenty miles north of norwich the coast is dangerous and the land even in our time inaccessible nevertheless the little bit of wood at bromel the fragment of the true cross brought pilgrims incessantly to the priory and sent them away with eyes opened and limbs straightened but some of them with their newly opened eyes saw a sight which shocked them the grave of john paston in bromel priory without a tombstone the news spread over the countryside the pastons had fallen they that had been so powerful could no longer afford a stone to put above John Paston's head. Margaret, his widow, could not pay her debts. The eldest son, Sir John, wasted his property upon women and tournaments, while the younger John also, though a man of greater parts, thought more of his hawks than of his harvests. The pilgrims, of course, were liars, as people whose eyes have just been opened by a piece of the true cross have every right to be. But their news, none the less, was welcome. The Pastons had risen in the world. People said even that they had been bondmen not so very long ago. At any rate, men still living could remember John's grandfather Clement tilling his own land, a hard-working peasant, and William, Clement's son, becoming a judge and buying land, and John, William's son, marrying well and buying more land, and quite lately inheriting the vast new castle at Caister, and all Sir John's lands in Norfolk and Suffolk. People said that he had forged the old knight's will. What wonder, then, that he lacked a tombstone? But if we consider the character of Sir John Paston, John's eldest son, and his upbringing and his surroundings, 
and the relations between himself and his father as the family letters reveal them we shall see how difficult it was and how likely to be neglected this business of making his father's tombstone for let us imagine in the most desolate part of england known to us at the present moment a raw new-built house without telephone bathroom or drains armchairs or newspapers and one shelf perhaps of books unwieldy to hold expensive to come by the windows look out upon a few cultivated fields and a dozen hovels and beyond them there is the sea on one side on the other a vast fen a single road crosses the fen but there is a hole in it which one of the farm hands reports is big enough to swallow a carriage and the man adds tom topcroft the mad bricklayer has broken loose again and ranges the country half-naked, threatening to kill anyone who approaches him. That is what they talk about at dinner in the desolate house, while the chimney smokes horribly, and the draught lifts the carpets on the floor. Orders are given to lock all gates at sunset, and when the long dismal evening has worn itself away, simply and solemnly, girt about with dangers as they are, these isolated men and women fall upon their knees in prayer in the fifteenth century however the wild landscape was broken suddenly and very strangely by vast piles of brand-new masonry there rose out of the sand-hills and heaths of the norfolk coast a huge bulk of stone like a modern hotel in a watering-place but there was no parade, no lodging-houses, and no pier at Yarmouth then, and this gigantic building on the outskirts of the town was built to house one solitary old gentleman without any children, Sir John Fastolf, who had fought at Agincourt and acquired great wealth. He had fought at Agincourt and got but little reward. No one took his advice. Men spoke ill of him behind his back. He was well aware of it. His temper was none the sweeter for it. He was a hot-tempered old man, powerful, embittered by a sense of grievance. But whether on the battlefield or at court, he thought perpetually of Caister, and how when his duties allowed he would settle down on his father's land and live in a great house of his own building the gigantic structure of caister castle was in progress not so many miles away when the little pastons were children john paston the father had charge of some part of the business and the children listened as soon as they could listen at all to talk of stone and building, of barges gone to London and not yet returned, of the twenty-six private chambers, of the hall and chapel, of foundations, measurements, and rascally workpeople. Later, in 1454, when the work was finished and Sir John had come to spend his last years at Caister, they may have seen for themselves the mass of treasure that was stored there, the tables laden with gold and silver plate, 
the wardrobes stuffed with gowns of velvet and satin and cloth of gold with hoods and tippets and beaver hats and leather jackets and velvet doublets and how the very pillow-cases on the beds were of green and purple silk there were tapestries everywhere the beds were laid and the bedrooms hung with tapestries representing sieges hunting and hawking men fishing archers shooting ladies playing on their harps dallying with ducks or a giant bearing the leg of a bear in his hand such were the fruits of a well-spent life to buy land to build great houses to stuff these houses full of gold and silver plate though the privy might well be in the bedroom was the proper aim of mankind mr and mrs paston spent the greater part of their energies in the same exhausting occupation for since the passion to acquire was universal one could never rest secure in one's possessions for long the outlying parts of one's property were in perpetual jeopardy the duke of norfolk might covet this manor the duke of suffolk that some trumped-up excuse as for instance that the pastons were bondmen gave them the right to seize the house and batter down the lodges in the owner's absence and how could the owner of paston and motby and drayton and gresham be in five or six places at once especially now that caister castle was his and he must be in london trying to get his rights recognized by the king the king was mad too they said did not know his own child they said or the king was in flight or there was civil war in the land norfolk was always the most distressed of counties and its country gentlemen the most quarrelsome of mankind indeed had mrs paston chosen she could have told her children how when she was a young woman a thousand men with bows and arrows and pans of burning fire had marched upon gresham and broken the gates and mined the walls of the room where she sat alone but much worse things than that had happened to women she neither bewailed her lot nor thought herself a heroine the long long letters which she wrote so laboriously in her clear cramped hand to her husband who was as usual away make no mention of herself the sheep had wasted the hay haydens and tuddenham's men were out a dyke had been broken and a bullock stolen they needed treacle badly and really she must have stuff for a dress but mrs paston did not talk about herself thus the little pastons would see their mother writing or dictating page after page hour after hour long long letters but to interrupt a parent who writes so laboriously of such important matters would have been a sin the prattle of children the lore of the nursery or schoolroom did not find its way into these elaborate communications for the most part her letters are the letters of an honest bailiff to his master explaining asking advice giving news rendering accounts there was robbery and manslaughter 
it was difficult to get in the rents. Richard Calley had gathered but little money, and what with one thing and another, Margaret had not had time to make out, as she should have done, the inventory of the goods which her husband desired. Well might old Agnes, surveying her son's affairs rather grimly from a distance, counsel him to contrive it so that, ye may have less to do in the world, your father said, in little business lieth much rest. This world is but a thoroughfare and full of woe, and when we depart therefrom, right not bear with us but our good deeds and ill. The thought of death would thus come upon them in a clap. Old Fastolf, cumbered with wealth and property, had his vision at the end of hell-fire, and shrieked aloud to his executors to distribute alms and see that prayers were said in perpetuum, so that his soul might escape the agonies of purgatory. William Paston, the judge, was urgent, too, that the monks of Norwich should be retained to pray for his soul forever. The soul was no wisp of air, but a solid body capable of eternal suffering, and the fire that destroyed it was as fierce as any that burnt on mortal grates. Forever there would be monks, and the town of Norwich and forever the chapel of Our Lady in the town of Norwick. There was something matter-of-fact, positive, and enduring in their conception, both of life and of death. With the plan of existence so vigorously marked out, children, of course, were well beaten, and boys and girls taught to know their places. They must acquire land, but they must obey their parents. A mother would clout her daughter's head three times a week, and break the skin if she did not conform to the laws of behavior. Agnes Paston, a lady of birth and breeding, beat her daughter Elizabeth. Margaret Paston, a softer-hearted woman, turned her daughter out of the house for loving the honest bailiff Richard Calley. Brothers would not suffer their sisters to marry beneath them, and sell candle and mustard in Framlingham. The fathers quarrelled with the sons, and the mothers, fonder of their boys than of their girls, yet bound by all law and custom to obey their husbands, were torn asunder in their efforts to keep the peace. With all her pains, Margaret failed to prevent rash acts on the part of her eldest son John, or the bitter words with which his father denounced him. He was a drone among bees, the father burst out, which labor for gathering honey in the fields, and the drone doth not, but taketh his part of it. He treated his parents with insolence, and yet was fit for no charge of responsibility abroad. But the quarrel was ended very shortly by the death, 22nd May, 1466, of John Paston, the father, in London. The body was brought down to Bromholm to be buried. Twelve poor men trudged all the way, bearing torches beside it alms were distributed, masses and dirges were said, bells were rung, great quantities of fowls, sheep, 
pigs eggs bread and cream were devoured ale and wine drunk and candles burnt two panes were taken from the church windows to let out the reek of the torches black cloth was distributed and a light set burning on the grave but john passed in the air delayed to make his father's tombstone he was a young man something over twenty-four years of age the discipline and the drudgery of a country life bored him when he ran away from home it was apparently to attempt to enter the king's household whatever doubts indeed might be cast by their enemies on the blood of the pastons sir john was unmistakably a gentleman he had inherited his lands the honey was his that the bees had gathered with so much labour he had the instincts of enjoyment rather than of acquisition and with his mother's parsimony was strangely mixed something of his father's ambition yet his own indolent and luxurious temperament took the edge from both he was attractive to women liked society and tournaments and court life and making bets and sometimes even reading books and so life now that john paston was buried started afresh upon rather a different foundation there could be little outward change indeed margaret still ruled the house she still ordered the lives of the younger children as she had ordered the lives of the elder the boys still needed to be beaten into book-learning by their tutors the girls still loved the wrong men and must be married to the right rents had to be collected the interminable lawsuit for the fastolf property dragged on battles were fought the roses of york and lancaster alternately faded and flourished norfolk was full of poor people seeking redress for their grievances and margaret worked for her son as she had worked for her husband with this significant change only that now instead of confiding in her husband she took the advice of her priest but inwardly there was a change it seems at last as if the hard outer shell had served its purpose and something sensitive appreciative and pleasure-loving had formed within at any rate sir john writing to his brother john at home strayed sometimes from the business on hand to crack a joke to send a piece of gossip or to instruct him knowingly and even subtly upon the conduct of a love affair be as lowly to the mother as ye list but to the maid not too lowly nor that ye be too glad to speed nor too sorry to fail and i shall always be your herald both here if she come hither and at home when i come home which i hope hastily within eleven days at the furthest and then a hawk was to be bought a hat or new silk laces sent down to john in norfolk prosecuting his suit flying his hawks and attending with considerable energy and not too nice a sense of honesty to the affairs of the pastern estates 
The lights had long since burnt out on John Paston's grave, but still Sir John delayed. No tomb replaced them. He had his excuses, what with the business of the lawsuit, and his duties at court, and the disturbance of the civil wars, his time was occupied, and his money spent. But perhaps something strange had happened to Sir John himself, and not only to Sir John dallying in London, but to his sister Marjorie falling in love with the bailiff, and to Walter making Latin verses at Eton, and to John flying his hawks at Paston. Life was a little more various in its pleasures. They were not quite so sure as the elder generation had been of the rights of man and of the dues of God, of the horrors of death and of the importance of tombstones. Poor Margaret Paston scented the change and sought uneasily with the pen which had marched so stiffly through so many pages to lay bare the root of her troubles. It was not that the lawsuit saddened her. She was ready to defend Caister with her own hands if need be, though I cannot well guide nor rule soldiers. But there was something wrong with the family since the death of her husband and master. Perhaps her son had failed in his service to God. He had been too proud or too lavish in his expenditure or perhaps he had shown too little mercy to the poor. Whatever the fault might be, she only knew that Sir John spent twice as much money as his father for less result, that they could scarcely pay their debts without selling land, wood, or household stuff. It is a death to me to think of it while every day people spoke ill of them in the country because they left john paston to lie without a tombstone the money that might have bought it or more land and more goblets and more tapestry was spent by sir john on clocks and trinkets and upon paying a clerk to copy out treatises upon knighthood and other such stuff there they stood at Paston, eleven volumes, with the poems of Lydgate and Chaucer among them, diffusing a strange air into the gaunt, comfortless house, inviting men to indolence and vanity, distracting their thoughts from business, and leading them not only to neglect their own profit, but to think lightly of the sacred dues of the dead." For sometimes, instead of riding off on his horse to inspect his crops or bargain with his tenants, Sir John would sit in broad daylight reading. There, on the hard chair, in the comfortless room with the wind lifting the carpet and the smoke stinging his eyes, he would sit reading Chaucer, wasting his time, dreaming, or what strange intoxication was it that he drew from books? Life was rough, cheerless, and disappointing. A whole year of days would pass fruitlessly in dreary business, like dashes of rain on the window-pane. There was no reason in it, as there had been for his father, no imperative need to establish a family and acquire an important position for children who were not born 
or if born, had no right to bear their father's name. But Lydgate's poems or Chaucer's, like a mirror in which figures move brightly, silently, and compactly, showed him the very skies, fields, and people whom he knew, but rounded and complete. Instead of waiting listlessly for news from London, or piecing out from his mother's gossip some country tragedy of love and jealousy, here, in a few pages, the whole story was laid before him. And then, as he rode or sat at table, he would remember some description or saying which bore upon the present moment and fixed it, or some string of words would charm him and putting aside the pressure of the moment he would hasten home to sit in his chair and learn the end of the story to learn the end of the story chaucer can still make us wish to do that he has pre-eminently that story-teller's gift which is almost the rarest gift among writers at the present day nothing happens to us as it did to our ancestors events are seldom important if we recount them we do not really believe in them we have perhaps things of greater interest to say and for these reasons natural story-tellers like mr garnett whom we must distinguish from self-conscious story-tellers like mr maysfield have become rare for the story-teller, besides his indescribable zest for facts, must tell his story craftily, without undue stress or excitement, or we shall swallow it whole, and jumble the parts together. He must let us stop, give us time to think, and look about us, yet always be persuading us to move on. Chaucer was helped to this to some extent by the time of his birth, and in addition he had another advantage over the moderns which will never come the way of English poets again. England was an unspoilt country. His eyes rested on a virgin land, all unbroken grass and wood, except for the small towns and an occasional castle in the building. No villa roofs peered through Kentish treetops. No factory chimney smoked on the hillside. The state of the country, considering how poets go to nature, how they use her for their images and their contrasts, even when they do not describe her directly, is a matter of some importance. Her cultivation or her savagery influences the poet far more profoundly than the prose writer. To the modern poet, with Birmingham, Manchester, and London the size they are, the country is the sanctuary of moral excellence, in contrast with the town which is the sink of vice. It is a retreat the haunt of modesty and virtue, where men go to hide and moralize. There is something morbid, as if shrinking from human contact, in the nature-worship of Wordsworth, still more in the microscopic devotion which Tennyson lavished upon the petals of roses and the buds of lime-trees. But these were great poets." In their hands the country was no mere jeweler's shop, 
or museum of curious objects to be described even more curiously in words poets of smaller gift since the view is so much spoilt and the garden or the meadow must replace the barren heath and the precipitous mountain side are now confined to little landscapes to birds nests to acorns with every wrinkle drawn to the life the wider landscape is lost but to chaucer the country was too large and too wild to be altogether agreeable he turned instinctively as if he had painful experience of their nature from tempests and rocks to the bright may day and the jocund landscape from the harsh and mysterious to the gay and definite without possessing a tithe of the virtuosity in word-painting which is the modern inheritance he could give in a few words or even when we come to look without a single word of direct description the sense of the open air and see the fresh flowers how they spring that is enough nature uncompromising untamed was no looking-glass for happy faces or confessor of unhappy souls she was herself sometimes therefore disagreeable enough and plain but always in chaucer's pages with the hardness and the freshness of an actual presence soon however we notice something of greater importance than the gay and picturesque appearance of the medieval world the solidity which plumps it out the conviction which animates the characters there is immense variety in the canterbury tales and yet persisting underneath one consistent type chaucer has his world he has his young men he has his young women if one met them straying in shakespeare's world one would know them to be chaucer's not shakespeare's he wants to describe a girl and this is what she looks like full seemly her wimple pinched was her nose traits her eye gray as glass her mouth full small, and there too soft and red, but sickerly she had a fair forehead, it was almost a span broad, I trow, for heartily she was not undergrow. Then he goes on to develop her. She was a girl, a virgin, cold in her virginity. I am, thou wouldst, yet of thy company, a maid, and love hunting and venery, and for to walk in the woods wild and not to bin a wife and be with child next he bethinks him how discreet she was in answering all ways and though she had been as wise as palais no counterfeited terms had she to seem wise but after her degree she spake and all her words more and less sounding in virtue and in gentleness each of these quotations in fact comes from a different tale but they are parts one feels of the same personage whom he had in mind perhaps unconsciously when he thought of a young girl and for this reason as she goes in and out of the canterbury tales bearing different names 
she has a stability which is only to be found where the poet has made up his mind about young women of course but also about the world they live in its end its nature and his own craft and technique so that his mind is free to apply its force fully to its object it does not occur to him that his griselda might be improved or altered there is no blur about her no hesitation she proves nothing she is content to be herself upon her therefore the mind can rest with that unconscious ease which allows it from hints and suggestions to endow her with many more qualities than are actually referred to such is the power of conviction a rare gift a gift shared in our day by joseph conrad in his earlier novels and a gift of supreme importance for upon it the whole weight of the building depends once believe in chaucer's young men and women and we have no need of preaching or protest we know what he finds good what evil the less said the better let him get on with his story paint knights and squires good women and bad cooks shipmen priests and we will supply the landscape give his society its belief its standing towards life and death and make of the journey to canterbury a spiritual pilgrimage this simple faithfulness to his own conceptions was easier then than now in one respect at least for chaucer could write frankly where we must either say nothing or say it slyly he could sound every note in the language instead of finding a great many of the best gone dumb from disuse and thus when struck by daring fingers giving off a loud discordant jangle out of keeping with the rest much of chaucer a few lines perhaps in each of the tales is improper and gives us as we read it the strange sensation of being naked to the air after being muffled in old clothing and as a certain kind of humour depends upon being able to speak without self-consciousness of the parts and functions of the body so with the advent of decency literature lost the use of one of its limbs it lost its power to create the wife of bath juliet's nurse and their recognizable though already colourless relation moll flanders stern from fear of coarseness is forced into indecency he must be witty not humorous he must hint instead of speaking outright nor can we believe with mr joyce's ulysses before us that laughter of the old kind will ever be heard again but lord christ when that it remembereth me upon my youth and on my aeolity it tickleth me about mine heart wrote unto this day it doth mine heart boat that i have had my world as in my time the sound of that old woman's voice is still but there is another and more important reason for the surprising brightness the still effective merriment of the canterbury tales 
Chaucer was a poet, but he never flinched from the life that was being lived at the moment before his eyes. A farmyard with its straw, its dung, its cocks, and its hens is not, we have come to think, a poetic subject. Poets seem either to rule out the farmyard entirely, or to require that it shall be a farmyard in Thessaly, and its pigs of mythological origin. But Chaucer says outright, Three large sows had she and Namo, three kin and eke a sheep that hight Mel. Or again, a yard she had enclosed all about, with sticks and a dry ditch without. He is unabashed and unafraid. He will always get up close to his object, an old man's chin, with thick bristles of his beard unsoft, like to the skin of houndfish sharp as briar, or an old man's neck. The slack skin about his neck shaketh the while that he sang, and he will tell you what his characters were, how they looked, what they ate and drank, as if poetry could handle the common facts of this very moment of Tuesday, the sixteenth day of April, 1387, without dirtying her hands. If he withdraws to the time of the Greeks or the Romans, it is only that his story leads him there. He has no desire to wrap himself round in antiquity, to take refuge in age, or to shirk the associations of common grocer's English. Therefore, when we say that we know the end of the journey, it is hard to quote the particular lines from which we take our knowledge. He fixed his eyes upon the road before him, not upon the world to come. He was little given to abstract contemplation. He deprecated with peculiar archness any competition with the scholars and divines. The answer of this I let to divines, but well I would that in this world grey pine is. What is this world? What asketh men to have? Now with his love, now in the cold grave, alone, without any company he asks, or ponders, O cruel goddess that govern this world with binding of your word etern, and written in the table of Athment, your parliament and your etern grant, what is mankind more unto you hold than is the sheep that rooketh in the fold? Questions press upon him. He asks questions, but he is too true a poet to answer them. He leaves them unsolved, uncramped by the solution of the moment, thus fresh for the generations that come after him. In his life, too, it would be impossible to write him down a man of this party or of that, a democrat or an aristocrat. He was a staunch churchman, but he laughed at priests. He was an able public servant and a courtier, but his views upon sexual morality were extremely lax. He sympathized with poverty, but did nothing to improve the lot of the poor. It is safe to say that not a single law has been framed, or one stone set upon another, because of anything that Chaucer said or wrote. 
and yet as we read him we are of course absorbing morality at every pore for among writers there are two kinds there are the priests who take you by the hand and lead you straight up to the mystery there are the laymen who embed their doctrines in flesh and blood and make a complete model of the world without excluding the bad or laying stress upon the good wordsworth coleridge and shelley are among the priests they give us text after text to be hung upon the wall saying after saying to be laid upon the heart like an amulet against disaster farewell farewell the heart that lives alone he prayeth best that loveth best all things both great and small such lines of exhortation and command spring to memory instantly but chaucer lets us go our ways doing the ordinary things with the ordinary people his morality lies in the way men and women behave to each other we see them eating drinking laughing and making love and come to feel without a word being said what their standards are and so are steeped through and through with their morality there can be no more forcible preaching than this where all actions and passions are represented and instead of being solemnly exhorted we are left to stray and stare and make out a meaning for ourselves it is the morality of ordinary intercourse the morality of the novel which parents and librarians rightly judge to be far more persuasive than the morality of poetry and so when we shut chaucer we feel that without a word being said the criticism is complete what we are saying thinking reading doing has been commented upon nor are we left merely with the sense powerful though that is of having been in good company and got used to the ways of good society for as we have jogged through the reel the unadorned countryside with first one good fellow cracking his joke or singing his song and then another we know that though this world resembles it is not in fact our daily world it is the world of poetry everything happens here more quickly and more intensely and with better order than in life or in prose there is a formal elevated dullness which is part of the incantation of poetry there are lines speaking half a second in advance what we were about to say as if we read our thoughts before words cumbered them and lines which we go back to read again with that heightened quality that enchantment which keeps them glittering in the mind long afterwards and the whole is held in its place and its variety and divagations ordered by the power which is among the most impressive of all the shaping power the architect's power it is the peculiarity of chaucer however that though we feel at once this quickening this enchantment we cannot prove it by quotation for most poets quotation is easy and obvious some metaphor suddenly flowers some passage breaks off from the rest 
but chaucer is very equal very even-paced very unmetaphorical if we take six or seven lines in the hope that the quality will be contained in them it has escaped my lord ye would that in my father's place ye did me strip out of my poverty wed and rich me clad in o your grace to you brought i not eels out of dread but faith and nakedness and maidenhead in its place that seemed not only memorable and moving but fit to set beside striking beauties cut out and taken separately it appears ordinary and quiet chaucer it seems has some art by which the most ordinary words and the simplest feelings when laid side by side make each other shine when separated lose their lustre thus the pleasure he gives us is different from the pleasure that other poets give us because it is more closely connected with what we have ourselves felt or observed eating drinking and fine weather the may cocks and hens millers old peasant women flowers there is a special stimulus in seeing all these common things so arranged that they affect us as poetry affects us and are yet bright sober precise as we see them out of doors there is a pungency in this unfigurative language a stately and memorable beauty in the undraped sentences which follow each other like women so slightly veiled that you see the lines of their bodies as they go and she set down her water-pot anon beside the threshold in an ox's stall and then as the procession takes its way tranquilly beautifully out from behind peeps the face of chaucer grinning malicious in league with all foxes donkeys and hens to mock the pomp and ceremonies of life witty intellectual french at the same time based upon a broad bottom of english humour so sir john read his chaucer in the comfortless room with the wind blowing and the smoke stinging and left his father's tombstone unmade but no book no tomb had power to hold him long he was one of those ambiguous characters who haunt the boundary line where one age merges in another and are not able to inhabit either at one moment he was all for buying books cheap next he was off to france and told his mother my mind is now not most upon books in his own house where his mother margaret was perpetually making out inventories or confiding in glois the priest he had no peace or comfort there was always reason on her side she was a brave woman for whose sake one must put up with the priest's insolence and choke down one's rage when the grumbling broke into open abuse and thou proud priest and thou proud squire were bandied angrily about the room all this with the discomforts of life and the weakness of his own character drove him to loiter in pleasanter places to put off coming to put off writing 
to put off year after year the making of his father's tombstone yet john paston had now lain for twelve years under the bare ground the prior of bronholm sent word that the grave cloth was in tatters and he had tried to patch it himself worse still for a proud woman like margaret paston the country people murmured at the paston's lack of piety and other families she heard of no greater standing than theirs spent money in pious restoration in the very church where her husband lay unremembered at last turning from tournaments and chaucer and mistress and halt sir john bethought him of a piece of cloth of gold which had been used to cover his father's hearse and might now be sold to defray the expenses of his tomb margaret had it in safe keeping she had hoarded it and cared for it and spent twenty marks on its repair she grudged it but there was no help for it she sent it him still distrusting his intentions or his power to put them into effect if you sell it to any other use she wrote by my troth i shall never trust you while i live but this final act like so many that sir john had undertaken in the course of his life was left undone a dispute with the duke of suffolk in the year fourteen seventy nine made it necessary for him to visit london in spite of the epidemic of sickness that was abroad and there in dirty lodgings alone busy to the end with quarrels clamorous to the end for money sir john died and was buried at whitefriars in london he left a natural daughter he left a considerable number of books, but his father's tomb was still unmade. The four thick volumes of the Paston letters, however, swallow up this frustrated man as the sea absorbs a raindrop, for, like all collections of letters, they seem to hint that we need not care over much for the fortunes of individuals the family will go on whether sir john lives or dies it is their method to heap up in mounds of insignificant and often dismal dust the innumerable trivialities of daily life as it grinds itself out year after year and then suddenly they blaze up the day shines out complete alive before our eyes it is early morning and strange men have been whispering among the women as they milk it is evening and there in the churchyard warren's wife bursts out against old agnes paston all the devils of hell draw her soul to hell now it is the autumn in norfolk and cecily dawn comes whining to sir john for clothing moreover sir liketh it your mastership to understand that winter and cold weather draweth nigh and i have few clothes but of your gift there is the ancient day spread out before us hour by hour 
but in all this there is no writing for writing's sake no use of the pen to convey pleasure or amusement or any of the million shades of endearment and intimacy which have filled so many english letters since only occasionally under stress of anger for the most part does margaret paston quicken into some shrewd saw or solemn curse men cut large thongs here out of other men's leather we beat the bushes and other men have the birds haste rueth which is to my heart a very spear that is her eloquence and that her anguish her sons, it is true, bend their pens more easily to their will. They jest rather stiffly, they hint rather clumsily, they make a little scene like a rough puppet-show of the old priest's anger, and give a phrase or two directly, as they were spoken in person. But when Chaucer lived, he must have heard this very language matter-of-fact, unmetaphorical far better fitted for narrative than for analysis capable of religious solemnity or of broad humour but very stiff material to put on the lips of men and women accosting each other face to face in short it is easy to see from the paston letters why chaucer wrote not lear or romeo and juliet but the canterbury tales sir john was buried and john the younger brother succeeded in his turn the paston letters go on life at paston continues much the same as before over it all broods a sense of discomfort and nakedness of unwashed limbs thrust into splendid clothing of tapestry blowing on the draughty walls of the bedroom with its privy of winds sweeping straight over land unmitigated by hedge or town of caister castle covering with solid stone six acres of ground and of the plain-faced pastons indefatigably accumulating wealth treading out the roads of norfolk and persisting with an obstinate courage which does them infinite credit in furnishing the bareness of england End of section 2